asking one of the great mysteries of our faith. In fact, Lord, our faith is surrounded with many mysteries, and yet they're glorious mysteries. They're not things that are hidden from us, but things that have been revealed to us in history, in the incarnation of your Son, in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, in the production of the written word. We ask for the enablement of your Holy Spirit as we open up your word, that we might truly apprehend what you have done for us in Jesus Christ our Lord. That we might draw near to him, for he has surely drawn near to us. We bless you and praise you for the glorious truths of your Son, our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Both the beginning and the end, both the entrance and the departure of Jesus into this world are supernatural. The Christian faith is grounded in the supernatural. We cannot explain these things by human knowledge alone. For they're beyond just the common comprehension. That does not mean we can understand what's being said. We can. But it's a mystery how Christ came into the world and how he departed from the world are supernatural actions of God. So both Jesus' entrance and Jesus' departure from this earth are supernatural. First, as to his entrance into the world. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary following the normal period of gestation. Nine months, approximately, he was in the womb. But here's the great mystery He existed before he was born. Listen to the word of God. You should know this passage. It's a sentence. One of the most important sentences in all of Scripture. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, the Logos. The word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only, or the one and only, or the unique son from the father, full of grace and truth. And listen to these words from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, New American Standard Version. Often the language is simply used from ancient times, but here is the New American Standard rendering of that verse. It's a prophecy concerning the birth of the Messiah, but as for you, Bethlehem Epaphratha, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. 
His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that the Word, that is eternal Son, existed before he was born of the Virgin Mary. But here's the great mystery, that he, in all of his divinity, added to himself our humanity. And he did that through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He was made man for us people and our salvation. Now the one who ascended is the one who first descended from heaven in his incarnation. For us to grasp the magnitude of the ascension, we need to consider the nature of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To that end, I invite you to look at two passages of Scripture that I hope to coordinate together for you. They're found in Hebrews chapter 10, along with Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So on your Scripture passage is handed out for you. They are printed. I begin with verse 5. But the passage really begins before that, which is talking about the ineffectiveness with the Old Testament ordinances of worship and sacrifices. Though they are ordained by God and they were a figure or a type of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do, they in and of themselves were not able to affect the forgiveness of our sin because the sacrifice for our sin, the sacrifice for the sin of man, must be by a man. It is man who sinned. It is man who must pay. It is man who transgressed. It is man who must render the due. He must receive the punishment. He must receive the judgment. But all of us, being born in Adam, are already condemned sinners before God. Therefore, we cannot make a sacrifice even for ourselves, much less for anyone else. And certainly not for the sins of all God's people. That requires an act of supernatural power and supernatural strength. But Hebrews 10 opens with, for the law, or for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now this speaking about the ordinances 
of worship that God ordained in the Old Covenant. God gave a law. It is summarized in what we call the Ten Words. Those commandments are often repeatedly broken by people, such as you and I. As sinners, we cannot atone for our own sin. But God gave animals to be sacrificed as substitutes for us, but those animals cannot actually do anything about our sin. What they can do is to remind us constantly of our sin and of our need of cleansing. What they constantly do is to testify to us, and they testified on the altars of Israel for hundreds of years, that we are sinners in need of cleansing, and it requires the blood to cleanse us from our sin. So what we call a a stopgap measure. They're a way in which God dealt with our sins and sort of put them on the shelf to be dealt with in finality by the one he appointed to be our sacrifice. That person is Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God. Consequently, Hebrews 10, 5, when Christ came into the world. So you see there's a a contrast here between the ineffectiveness of the old covenant sacrifices, though they are ordained of God, they could not actually achieve that which they symbolized. They're a shadow, but Jesus himself and his sacrifice is the reality. So we have a shadow, what we call a type, that yields to an antitype, that is, to what it points to, to the reality itself. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and now there's a quotation from, I believe it is Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So what does that verse say? Jesus himself, in his pre-incarnate state, is speaking these words, as he is made man, as he comes in, the word is planted in the womb of the Virgin Mary supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. And there, using the very structure of Mary's body, a human body is made in which Christ himself is united. He adds to himself humanity while retaining his full deity. He says, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you prepared for me. God prepared the body for him. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, 
Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. In other words, I have come to be the sacrifice, to be the sin offering, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now we could think of Isaiah 52 and 53 in that regard, or other passages of Scripture. So, the first point is that Jesus' entry into the world is supernatural. He is sent by the Father with a body conceived in Mary by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Hear the words of Paul in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the morphe of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now that text does not say he ceased to be God. What it says is he took to himself the role of being the servant of Yahweh. And as the servant of Yahweh, he will fulfill all of God's law, including the law of the judgment against sin, shadowed by all of those sacrifices in the Old Covenant. So Christ's entry into the world is supernatural, and he is sent by the Father to accomplish this mission. Now that's what Jesus is talking about in the passage that we read from John chapter 7. Notice what it says in John chapter 7. In verse uh, 28, Jesus is speaking. He says, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He's speaking to the Jews, especially the authorities that do not recognize him. I know him. Jesus is saying, I know the Father, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus was sent. Now, they want to arrest him. Why? Because of all these claims he's making. Yet many people believed on him. And they said, well, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs than this man's done? He has all the signs of the Messiah. Why are we looking for anybody else? This must be him. The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things, and they sent officers to arrest Jesus. But they couldn't do it. As we read the rest of the story, what happens is that the guards who came to arrest him were so awed by the words of Jesus that they went away empty-handed. But Jesus says to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. So what is he doing? He's prophesying. He's prophesying that he's here for a little while on a mission. But then he will return to the one who sent him. We could add these words. At that time, you will seek me and you will not find me. I was thinking the other day about the day of resurrection. 
When Jesus was raised from the dead, the grave site, which was a cave, is where his body was, was empty of his body, but his clothes were there. His grave clothes were there. The text says that. So they're like in a, it's like a cocoon. The clothes are there. And separately, the head that had been around him, the wrapping around his head, had been neatly folded and placed on a shelf. These are supernatural signs, but there was no body in the tomb. There was no body, no flesh inside the grave clothes that were there. He was gone. And what did the authorities do that day? Well, they sent the guards to look for him, to search for him, to try to find out where the disciples had moved him to. Now, do you notice this is ridiculous on the surface? Here is, the clothes are there, but the body's gone, and the clothes are not all torn up or anything. They're there, but no body. They send the authorities looking for him throughout the city. Where did they stash him? They looked for him. They sought him, but they could not find him. But for the next 40 days, Jesus appeared repeatedly with his disciples, sometimes with the 12, sometimes with a a few of them, sometimes with a, a larger group. At one time, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, for 500 at one time. All of these appearances of Jesus, there are 10 recorded, takes away that it would be some kind of hallucination. Different times of the day and night. And Jesus came, he spoke, he was felt, he ate, he taught, he was alive with them. These 40 days coming and going. And this establishes indisputable proof of the reality of his resurrection from the dead. Now this ministry was extremely important because Jesus reminded them and went over events in his life that they were witness to and explained the meaning of them. This is where we get our New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record eyewitness testimony, either because they themselves were the eyewitness, notably Matthew, and Peter through Mark was an eyewitness, and John was an eyewitness. Luke, though not an eyewitness, interviewed the eyewitnesses, including Mary. And it's from these eyewitness sources that we have the gospel narratives. So Jesus establishes the proof of his resurrection and gives the meaning of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection to them. So that when we read in the epistles, we understand what the significance of all of this is. Christ himself explains from the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament the things about himself for they testify of him. So back to our first point. What is our first point? Is that Christ's entry into the world was a supernatural mystery, but a reality. The Word became flesh, and 
He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, notably the role of the servant of Yahweh being born in the likeness of men. Being born in the form, the same word is used, the form of God, the form of man. Deity plus humanity equals Jesus of Nazareth. Second, when Christ came, he came on a mission from the Father, and that mission was to be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. His mission was to do his Father's will. What was the Father's will? Well, first will was that he would obey all of God's will, all of God's commands, all the things the Father asked of him to do. Remember when he came to John the Baptist and asked to be baptized? He wanted to be immersed. John said, no, this is totally inappropriate. <laughs> because he's the forerunner. Why is he baptizing the one who's, who's he's prophesying was coming after him? But Jesus said to him, what? We must do the will of the Father. Why? Because God had ordained baptism of John as a forerunner, and therefore Jesus must be in obedience to all that God commanded. And he was identifying with us, true, but he was also simply obeying the will that God had given to John the Baptist in instituting baptism for those who were preparing to meet the Messiah. The Father's mission was for him to do the will of offering the real effectual sacrifice for sins. And he would do so in his perfect, sinless humanity. This is the why of the incarnation. If we are to be forgiven, and if we are to be the sons and daughters of God, if we are to be the children of God, our sins must be atoned for. They must have justice enacted upon them. And justice is the wrath of God. It is the punishment of hell. Jesus comes to make the offering of his body, his perfect sinless humanity, on the cross, for the sins of his people. And his offering accomplishes what all the Old Testament ordinances simply testified to. You see, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. That's what he says, Hebrews chapter 10. When he said, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first, that's the first ordinances of worship and sacrifices, in order to establish the second. And by that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once. For all. And so Philippians 2 testifies in verse 8 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now the author of Hebrews, which is probably an associate of Paul, perhaps Apollos. I'm going beyond scripture there. Every priest stands daily at his service, writes, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. We're talking about what was ordained under the old covenant. Every day sacrifices were made, 365 days a year. And on some days there were so many sacrifices made, so many animals died, thousands and thousands of animals were put to death for the sins of people. Well, they didn't sin. We did. And our sin affects them, and that's why they're all messed up sometimes. (laughs) But these were all offered according to the law. But Christ comes to actually bring about the reality that they pointed to. Those sacrifices and offerings were made continually because they could never actually take away the sin. They couldn't do it. They simply testified to this fact. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat at the right hand of God. Now there we have the reason for the ascension. Now there are a number of reasons for the ascension. But here's certainly one. Christ has completed his work. And when he has completed the work of making the one all-sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people, he is received back into heaven and set down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Well, who are his enemies? Well, the devil, Satan, and his demons, and all unbelievers. Until we came to faith in Christ, we were his enemies. You see, Christ died for us even when we were sinners. And Christ died for us even when we were his enemies. And we experienced that in portions of our life until we came to faith in him. Our first point was the entry of Jesus into the world was that he is supernaturally sent by the Father. The second is that his mission was to do the Father's will of offering the real sacrifice for sin in his perfect, sinless humanity on the tree. The third point is that his exodus from the world is supernatural also. It is the glorification of the incarnate Son. Now let me read to you. I think you can look at it. On the catechism, the catechism lesson that I printed up for today. These are from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, from the Heidelberg Catechism. Both of these have Baptist adaptations. And one I'm not sure where I got it from. I may have wrote it myself. But here, let me read it to you. How was Christ exalted in his ascension? And 46... What do we confess when we say, or when you say, we ascended into heaven? Let's read that. What do you confess when you say, he ascended into heaven? Read with me. That Christ, before the eyes of his disciples, 
was taken up from the earth into heaven, and that he is there for our benefit until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. If I look at the one above it, how was Christ exalted in his ascension? And I'll read it. Christ was exalted in his ascension and that having often appeared to and conversed with his apostles after his resurrection, speaking to them of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and giving them commission to preach the gospel to all nations, he visibly went up into the highest heavens 40 days after his resurrection. In our nature, as our head, triumphing over his enemies. He went there to receive gifts for men, to raise up our affections to heaven, and to prepare a place for us where he himself is and will continue until his second coming at the end of the world or at the end of the age. So this is what happened. On that day, Jesus in his humanity ascended into heaven. Now this was a new experience for Jesus, the Son of God. He was born in our nature, our humanity, as mortal, sinless and perfect, yet fully human and fully mortal. That means he was subject to death. He could die. That's necessary in order for him to make the sacrifice for sin. So he was born in our mortal humanity, though sinless. But after making the sacrifice for our sins, he is raised in immortal humanity. He is raised in incorruptible humanity. That means humanity that can never be subject to temptation or sin, that can never be sick, and that can never die. He was raised incorruptible and immortal. So the humanity of Christ coming out of the tomb is a glorified humanity, but a physical Humanity, flesh and bone. And Jesus demonstrated that in the days of his post-resurrection appearances. He said, touch me, handle me, listen to me, look at me, let me eat something with you. That's quite physical. It's that body, the body of his incarnation, now glorified, that he is raised up to heaven in. It happened this way. The text tells us. You know, Jesus appeared in Galilee, then he came back to Jerusalem. The reason they came back is because it was the Feast of Pentecost. When Jesus was crucified, it was the Feast of Passover and first fruits. But now, 50 days later, it would be the Feast of Pentecost. So this is 10 days before the actual feast itself. And Jesus and his disciples are all gathered back in Jerusalem. And they talk to Jesus back and forth about the kingdom, about the prophecies and all this nature. 
And when somebody asks some inquiring question, when is this going to happen? And are you going to do this or that to Israel? He said, it's none of your business. I'm paraphrasing. I say, that's basically what he said. It's none of your business. That's the Father's business. We'll get to that when it's time. Right now, this is what you're to do. You are to be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, spreading out to Judea, going to Samaria, and going to the rest of the world, the known world. And when we read the book of Acts, that's what we find. They start Jerusalem, they go to Samaria, they're in Judea, and then they go to, to Asia Minor, and they even go to Rome. So, that's what happens. They're witnesses. That's what happened during that period of time. But now one day, as Jesus is talking with them, he takes a particular pose. He raises his hands as the high priest, for he's truly our high priest. And raising his hands, he pronounced the benediction. I believe he simply said the ironic benediction. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. But as he's speaking the benediction, his body begins to move upward. And upward. And upward. Until he is hidden in the cloud. It's the cloud of the presence of God. It's the Shekinah glory of God. Jesus ascends and into the cloud he goes. And he returns into heaven. And when we think about heaven, we don't need to try to figure out how many miles is it? Is it the North Star or whatever? It's a new dimension. It's a different dimension. There are many different dimensions in reality. So heaven is in a different dimension than this dimension. But Christ can remain active in this dimension while being in that dimension by means of the Holy Spirit whom he sent upon the church on the day of Pentecost. So this is what happened. The ascension. And Jesus is glorified. So that's the third aspect. The first aspect is he who descended is the one who ascended after making the sacrifice for the sins of his people. And in being ascended, he is now glorified. And so we read from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that expression every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father comes from the book of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 45. Turn with me. Isaiah chapter 45. So what does it mean that we are to proclaim Jesus as Lord, Lord of all? Well, this is what the Lord God himself says 
Look at verse... Let's start at verse 18. Well, we'll start at verse 15. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them, that is the gods of the heathen, are idols. Go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by Yahweh, the Lord, with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Look down at verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? That is the Lord. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, every tongue swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord... All the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall receive glory. Do you understand? When Paul writes in Philippians 2, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. He has identified Jesus as Yahweh, as Jehovah. Now, we have one last thing to ask. What was the meaning of the significance of the ascension? Now, I could do a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to do that, okay? I want you to only think about one, perhaps two things, of the significance for Jesus and the significance for us. There are many significances. First of all, as we think about the ascension, Jesus longed to return to the Father. You see, the Son, the Word, was the beloved of the Father from all eternity. God is love. And as the God of love, God in the fullness of His being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, experiences the community of love. The Father loved and delighted in the Son from all eternity. Jesus gave up that glory in becoming incarnate. He didn't cease to be where he was, but he took to himself humanity. But he longed to be returned to the Father's embrace, to use human language. 
And so he prayed in his high priestly prayer just before he went to the cross. I glorified you. He's speaking to the Father. John 17. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I want to come home. I want to be back with you. And so now, the work is accomplished. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, declares us the great deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it ends in verse 3, the following. He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's Creator. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's what the ascension is all about. He who as the high priest and as the sacrifice for sin has completed his work. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That's Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So now we have understood something of what the significance of the ascension is to, for Jesus. It's the recognition that his work is completed. That it is perfect. That it is all sufficient. That it accomplished what God wanted to do. Jesus bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Our sins have been atoned for. And we are free. But you say... I'm still struggling because we remain where? In a world of sin. In a world of temptation with bodies that are not yet glorified. With bodies that are still subject to temptation and subject to sin. Sin that's been atoned for. Nevertheless, sin that we experience in real time and space and sin, which in our real time and space, needs to have brought to us the reality and the assurance of the ongoing cleansing of our sin. And that's 1 John 1, 7. The blood of Jesus Christ goes on cleansing us from sin. It never stops as long as it's needed, and it never loses its effectiveness. Here's the reality of the ascension of Christ for us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. <laughs> We're still here, right? We're still passing through. 
But God will not hold against us our sins and lawless deeds. Why? Because they've been atoned for. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. We do not continue to offer up offerings for sin because the one effectual, perfect sacrifice has been made. So the ascension testifies for Jesus that his work on earth is finished, that it is completed, that it is perfect. His ascension to us means that he has undertaken his ministry in heaven for us who are still here. He is our advocate on high. He is our great high priest. He is the one who ever lives to make intercession for the people of God. He is the one who applies to his people the benefits of his own redemption for us. So we have a perfect Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let me share with you some words of a hymn. Jesus completed his mission. It's finished. The sacrifice is over and is wholly sufficient, securing eternal redemption. This is why our salvation is eternal, why it is secure, why it can never be lost. Jesus, hell enthroned in glory, therefore ever to abide. All the heavenly hosts adore thee, seated at thy Father's side. Therefore, sinners, you are pleading. There you do our place prepare, ever for us interceding, till in glory we appear. Here's the benefit for us of the ascension of Christ. It's the fact of the forgiveness of our sins, which is an ongoing reality based on his once-for-all sufficient sacrifice. Now this brings us a double assurance. Because of this reality, the ascension of Christ is the assurance of our own physical human glorification in the end of time. Because Christ is raised and ascended into heaven in his humanity, we will be raised in bodies likened unto his. Our bodies will be raised incorruptible, and immortal, glorified in the beauty of the Savior, we will bear the image of the man from heaven. You know who the most beautiful person in the entire universe is to God? It's His Son, Jesus. But you and I one day, because of His great work for us, will bear His image. We will be beautiful in the beauty of Jesus Christ. You've raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places, there with you in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in your ascension, 
we by faith behold our own. What more can I say? And the people said, Amen. Father, you've allowed us to look into your word and you've allowed us some comprehension, though we must admit our comprehension is partial. We can't really fathom all the depths of the mystery of your being, much less the mystery of the incarnation of your Son and of the great mystery of not only his incarnation, his entrance into our world, but of his exodus out of this world in the glory of the ascension of our Savior. But Lord, this is not just a historical fact. This is a reality in our lives. A reality that you've raised us from the dead to participate in the life of the resurrected Christ. And you have caused us to be ascended into heaven with him. Therefore, we set our affection on things above where Christ is. For when he appears, Christ who is our life shall appear. And we shall appear with him in glory. For such blessings, we praise you, O God. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. With a hymn, the lyrics are new, the tune is old. The lyrics are written by a brother in Canada.